Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. Here's the Word of God. It says, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, specifically this morning for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for all that is there um, for us. Uh, we thank You for revealing Yourself and Your Gospel and who we truly are in Your Word. And we pray, God, that You would help us to understand and to believe this morning. I pray that You would bless this sermon. We are nowhere without You. Please help us. In Christ's name, Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 is a fascinating verse. Um, let's, uh, let's begin the sermon this morning by, by reading through just Hebrews 2.10 um, slowly together, thinking about just this one verse uh, before we do anything else. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it was fitting, which means it was, it was appropriate, it was proper, it was good, that He, for whom and by whom all things exist... So this is God the Father, and he, and he is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So in other words, if anything has ever existed anywhere, ever, at any time, it has existed because God has created it. God Himself has brought it into existence. Anything, anywhere that has ever been or ever happened has been or has happened because God has brought it into existence. God has created all things, and God holds all things together. So He is the one by whom all things exist, but He's also the one for whom all things exist. So everything everywhere, everyone everywhere, anyone who has ever lived, anything that has ever happened, anything that has ever existed, has, has existed and happened and been for the glory of God. This is what God is always doing. This is why everything is always happening. If you ever wonder what is going on in the world, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. But I do know what's going on ultimately. I know the answer behind all the other answers. I know that if it is happening, if it has ever happened, or if it ever will happen, if someone, if someone exists now or in history or in the future, or if something exists, it, it exists because God is bringing glory to Himself. God is on a, an unstoppable mission to show everyone everywhere how wonderful He is. That is the end of the story. The end of the story is everyone coming to terms with the fact that God is wonderful. And, and there's going to be a day someday where everybody sees it. Whether they want to or not. 
whether they like the idea or not. That is where we are headed. Because everything, everywhere, exists by God and for God. So, when you're wondering what's happening in the world around you, that is the answer behind all the other answers. God is bringing glory to himself. If we lose track of that, and it's very easy for, for us to lose track of that. It's very easy for me to lose track of that. If we lose track of it, we'll be, we will suffer far more confusion and anxiety than we need to suffer. So, so for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. And so right now, God the Father is bringing many sons to glory, many sons and daughters. We saw this last week in Psalm 8. God is bringing this this big family of worshipers to Himself. This is God's plan for salvation. This is how the God who does all things for His own glory has decided to save a whole family of worshipers for Himself. Bring them out of darkness into His glorious light. God is the one who is bringing them to glory. How is He going to do it? In bringing many sons to glory, our verse says, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So how is the infinitely wise Father, who is always doing all things for His own glory, how is He going to bring many sons, many daughters, this great big family to glory? How is He going to do it? How is He going to bring this, this great big family of worshipers into His perfect, joyful presence forever? How is He going to do this absurdly gracious thing? by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ is the founder of our salvation. He is the the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who has come to rescue us out of our slavery to sin and to bring us home to Himself forever. He has done this by dying on the cross in order to pay for the sins that we have committed so that we can be truly forgiven by the Father. Please, if you've never believed this good news, believe it now, please. Through His death on the cross, Jesus has rescued a great big family for Himself out of the condemnation that we deserve. We were born rightfully sentenced to hell. And He has rescued us from the sentence we deserve. Please believe this good news. He is our only hope. He is the founder of our salvation. But then, look at what... The verse says, it was fitting that that He, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. It was appropriate, it was good, that He make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that God the Father made God the Son perfect through suffering. We, we know from the rest of the book of Hebrews, Jesus had no character flaws. He had no sin that He needed to get rid of. There was no, there's no moral problems. There's no behavior problems. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So we know He didn't have any sin issues that needed to be ironed out. So what does it mean that God the Father made God the Son perfect through suffering? If this is talking about his qualifications for the job the Father had for him. This is vocational. In other words, in order to save us from our sin, the Son had to be 
vocationally qualified for the job. He had to be consecrated for the job. In, in the Old Testament, the priests would completely wash their body and then they would put on the priestly robes. This, this consecrated them, this set them apart for the, for the priestly job. The, the son, in his humanity, had to earn the qualification necessary to save his people. It's kind of like if you join, if you, if you, if you uh, get a job at some big company, right? And you, in order to, in order to get all the, to, to, in order to rise the ranks, right? Until, until you get to that top level, you get the all access key card, you've got the key card, you've got the clearance to go to any room you want to and mess around with whatever stuff you want to, you want to mess around with. When, before you get that all access key card, you've got to take some steps. You've got to check some boxes. You've got to rise through the ranks. They don't just give that to anybody. You've got to earn it. You've got to check the boxes to get there. This is, a, this is a box that Jesus had to check in order to be qualified for the job of saving his people from their sin. The son had to do something that he had never done before. He had to do something new. He had to suffer. See, listen carefully. The Son of God, before His incarnation, never ever suffered. Before God the Son became man, before He took on human flesh, before He became both God and man, before the incarnation, He had never suffered. The triune God doesn't suffer. The pre-incarnate Christ didn't suffer. The triune God doesn't suffer. You, you cannot cause God pain. You cannot wound God's psyche. You cannot damage God's happiness. You cannot interrupt God's plans. You cannot threaten God's joy. You cannot make God endure what Jesus endured in the garden. Jesus, because He was human, because He was completely God and completely human, He could, in the garden, endure and, and face the prospect of doing something that he would rather not do. Before his incarnation, Jesus never had to do something that he would rather not do. Jesus never had to say to the Father, I don't want to do this, but since you want me to, I will. I would rather let this cup pass from me, but since this is your will, I'm going to do it. Not my will, your will. That's impossible in, within the triune God. Never happened. He never suffered. He never had to face something he didn't want to face. So in order to truly suffer, the Son of God had to become truly human. And so, as a man on earth, Jesus suffered. In his humanity, he suffered shame, he suffered sadness, he suffered grief and loneliness and betrayal and the agony and the disgrace of the cross and the wrath of God as he hung there bleeding for sinners. And that suffering is what qualified him to save us from our sin. This was the fitting plan of God. The appropriate plan of God. And since it was the appropriate plan of of the God who only and ever does all things for his own glory... We know that by appropriate, by fitting, we mean it was the best possible plan. It was truly good. It was truly beautiful. Truly glorious plan. And as we look at verses 11 through 13, 
we can see the beauty of it. It's beauty we don't deserve. We can see the goodness that we don't deserve, the fittingness, the appropriateness that we don't deserve. Why was it appropriate? Why was it fitting? We have three reasons why it was fitting for the Son to suffer. Three reasons why it was fitting for the Son to suffer. And right now you're thinking, so that was your introduction, Steve? Felt like a lot. Yeah. I was... um, I was going to preach verses 10 through 18 today, so this, is about, this was going to be about an eight-point sermon, but it's down to three. Um, I took some verses off of it. I have a friend who is preaching through Hebrews right now, and he says, yeah, I'm going to preach 10 through 18, um, although I, I would like to cut it in half, but I can't because there's other guys on my preaching schedule, and I've already given them what they're going to preach. I was like, well, I already gave Colin what he's going to preach. I'm just changing it on him, you know, just like he's got he's to just roll with it, right? Um, but he, I guess he loves his fellow pastors better than I love mine. I don't, I don't know. So I'm being kind to you and unkind to Colin. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting some of the sermon off for your sake, and I'm making his life a little harder. You guys are fine with that, right? Three reasons why it was fitting for the son to suffer. Reason number one, because now the Son is unashamed to call us family. Because now the Son is unashamed to call us family. Verse 11 says, look at this verse carefully. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed Call them brothers. So for, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So, so the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, and the, and the family of believers that God is bringing to glory all have one source. They are all from one family. They are all from the same family. In other words, The Son of God has come and sanctified His brothers and sisters. He has saved His family. We are the family of God with Christ. And now, this is not, this is not universalism. This is only for those who, who believe. He's not bringing all sons to glory. He is bringing many sons to glory. But for all those who, who are sanctified, all, all those who are of that one source, all of those who are in the family of God, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, we are very different from Christ. There's a, there's a, very, there's a very important um, uh, distinction in this verse. It's, there's, there's he who sanctifies, and then there are those who, he are, who are sanctified. So we've got Jesus who does the sanctifying and we've got the rest of us who need to be sanctified. Right? So there's a very, there's a big difference between our brother and us. The big difference between our brother and us. He's the one who sanctifies. We are the ones who need to be sanctified. But we are all of the same family. 
We are all of the same family. And so when the book of Hebrews uses the word sanctified, it, it means it has the idea of made truly clean before God. We're going to look at this when we get to like Hebrews 9. There are some just wonderful verses in there about Jesus sanctifying us before God. It is a beautiful idea. So when the book of Hebrews says that Christ sanctifies us, it means that Christ completely, truly cleans us. So the logic of Hebrews goes like this. Because we belong to God, or or to put it in, in the Hebrews language, since we are among the many sons and daughters that God is bringing to glory, since we belong to God, Christ has spilled His blood to sanctify us, to save us. And since Christ has spilled His blood to save us now and forevermore, He is not ashamed to call us family. He is not ashamed of you because He has sanctified you. He has cleansed you. He's done a really good job. I, I love my son, Pete. Um, he, like all of my children, he brings me great joy. I, I enjoy my son, Pete. I, I love him. I enjoy him. Um, he is he's a lot of fun. I, I, I love him. But, Pete is, in all respects, a fourth grade boy. He is just, he is a living stereotype of a fourth grade boy. He, he does not, from what I can tell, he does not care about his appearance. Um, my wife and I, we care about his appearance. His sisters check on, on him often. They mention different stuff they see on his face and the, the, con- the, the, the condition of his hair and and whether or not his clothes match. Um, they care what he looks like. I care what he looks like. My wife cares what he looks like. He does not care what he looks like. And we care mostly because we know that people know that he belongs to us. <laughs> He's got our last name. He's with us. So when we point out the food on his face or whatever, uh, it's not mostly about him. It's mostly about us. You're not going to look like that going out there. People know you're, 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 you're one of us. They saw which car you got out of. Clean your face. You and I, um, we can think this way sort of about Jesus. We can assume that Jesus is at least a little bit ashamed of us. Jesus is like, what, is, what are they doing? Clean yourself up before you go where there's people. What is wrong with you? We, we have this deep feeling that there's no way Jesus is glad to associate with us. There's no way Jesus is glad to call us his own. But we're wrong. This verse is clear. If, if our hope is in Christ alone if we are trusting in the salvation that He has purchased on the cross, then He is not ashamed of us because... And here's the reason He's not ashamed of us. Because He cleaned us up. Before the Father, your face is clean. Your whole person is clean. Your heart is clean. Your clothes are fine. So here's the thing about us. There's dirt in us that we're too sinful and foolish to even know is there. We feel bad about ourselves. 
we don't even know the half of it. We're blind to our own sin. The beautiful thing about the cross is Jesus cleaned that up too. Jesus is good with the way you look. He's good with your outfit. You are dressed in robes of righteousness. He has sanctified you. He is not ashamed of you because He has suffered to clean you up. Why is it that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers? To call us family? Because He suffered to clean us. To thoroughly, completely clean us. So now the Son is unashamed to call us family. Second reason, second reason why it is fitting and proper and good and beautiful for the Son to suffer. Second reason, because now the Son is in the midst of the congregation. Because now the Son is in the midst of the congregation. So the end of verse 11 says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So in joining us in our humanity, Jesus has done something very, very surprising. He has joined us at church. So the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22 here. Psalm 22, if you read through the first 20 verses of Psalm 22, you'd be like, this is about the cross. This is about Jesus dying on the cross. How is Psalm 22 written a thousand years before Jesus? This is about the cross. If you read through Psalm 22, you you have phrases like, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have all, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22. The first 20 verses or so, it's about the cross. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus' suffering on the cross. In Jesus' dying on the cross. Jesus experienced Psalm 22. But then, but then, and when we get to the part that Jesus is quoting here in the book of Hebrews, but then the psalm changes its tune in the second half. And it becomes a song of confidence in the Lord. It becomes a song of confidence that God will indeed raise up His faithful King. He will raise up His anointed, even from death itself. And so the psalmist says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And so... so what we have here is, is Jesus grabs hold of the first part of Psalm 22 while He is on the cross. He grabs hold of the first part of it. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? They, they cast lots for My garments. They pierce My hands and My feet. They, they mock Me. They say, they say, if He trusts in God, let God save Him. So this is the first, the first 20 verses or so all about Jesus suffering on the cross. And then there's this great confidence in the back half of the psalm. After Jesus suffers, He knows the Father will. And while He is suffering, 
while he is suffering, Jesus knows that the Father will raise him up. Why? So he can be in the midst of his church. Jesus says, God is going to raise me up so I will tell of his name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise him. So listen carefully. There is a very real way in which Jesus himself meets with us in the midst of his church. Congregation there is the the same word we use for the local church. When we gather as a church, Jesus speaks of the name of the Father to his brothers and sisters. In other words, there is a very real way in which Jesus himself builds up our strength and our faith and our hope in God builds up this desire for the glory of God, this passion for God, this contentment in God. Jesus builds that up in us as we gather as His local church. There's a very real way in which Jesus Himself praises the Father with us. Jesus deserves all the praise His Father deserves, but in His, in His unashamed brotherliness with His, with His brothers and sisters, with His family, He praises the Father with us. He's unashamed to be our brother. He is forever committed to building us up. Now we know, a little bit of Christology here, right? We we know that Jesus isn't um, omnipresent the, the way the Father is omnipresent. We know that Jesus, since the moment of His incarnation, now has a... He has a body. He has a body. So He can't be like like everywhere... He's not here with us. If He was here with us, we would see Him. He has a visible, tangible body. But we also know that He has made some hardcore promises in the New Testament. For instance, He has said, for where two or three are gathered in My name, and in that context, He is absolutely talking about the local church. He's he's talking about the church. It's one of the very few times He uses the word in the book of Matthew. He says, where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. There is a way in which Jesus gives strength to His church. Where Jesus Jesus is is active and helping and, and sanctifying and doing great work in His church. This is why church is not optional for the believer. It's not optional. This is the one place where Jesus has guaranteed to meet with us and to encourage us and to grow us in grace and godliness. So let's commit ourselves, body and soul, to the local church. Think about this with me. Jesus suffered the first part of Psalm 22 so He could give us the second part of Psalm 22. He said "He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that He could eventually say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He died in order to establish the church, a bunch of little brothers and sisters that he could that he could build up, he could encourage, he could grow in their faith, he could stir up for the glory of God. That's the second reason why it was fitting for the Son to suffer. He suffered the, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered that faithfully knowing full well the Father would raise Him from the dead. He suffered that faithfully so that He could then say, I will tell of Your name to My brothers. In the midst of the church, I will praise You. 
That's our second reason. Our third reason. Third reason why it was fitting for the Son to suffer. Because now the Son claims us as proof of God's faithfulness. Reason number three. Because now the Son claims us as proof of God's faithfulness. So in verse 13, the author of Hebrews is going to give us a couple more Old Testament quotations. Jesus says, And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is just further proof, further support that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is, he is glad to meet with us in the midst of the congregation. He is glad to give that kind of strength and health and life to His church. And, He says, I will put my trust in Him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So those phrases there in verse 13 are from Isaiah 8. Uh, they're quotations from Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. And in those verses... Isaiah the prophet was not having a great day. He was not having a good day. Uh, in fact, it had been a rough year or so, decade maybe, because he had been preaching the word of God and preaching it and preaching it and preaching it. He had been preaching the word of God exactly as God had given it to him. He was just a mouthpiece for the oracles of God. He was proclaiming the word of God to the people and nobody cared. Nobody believed. Nobody was buying it. No one wanted the word of God. But Isaiah believed. Isaiah believed. And the Lord had had graciously given Isaiah a couple of sons. You read through it. It's a pretty cool story. Isaiah 7, 8, 9. Um, And he had given Isaiah a couple of really cool sons and a couple of really cool promises that went along with them. And when Isaiah was to see those sons, he was to remember that God keeps His promises. These sons were like the, like the, like the, uh, the picture uh, of the remnant that was going to come. These were, these were the reminder that God still had people that believed. God still had a faithful remnant among His people. That there were people that were holding on to the promises of God. And there were, there were going to be. In every generation, there was going to be a small remnant. These these sons were proof that Isaiah can bank on the promises of God. And so now that's what Jesus is saying of us. Jesus says, I have trusted in the faithfulness of God. Jesus has taken the words of Isaiah and made them his own and said, I have trusted in the faithfulness of God. I have believed in God's promises all the way up to and including on the cross. As I suffered on the cross, I believed the promises of God. And now Jesus says, and look, look at these children that God has given. Look at these children God has given. Look at this congregation. Look at these little brothers and sisters. Look at them. Look at the children God has given. They are the proof that God keeps His promises. So church, when you are tempted to give up, 
when you are tempted to despair, when, when following Jesus, when submitting to His Word, when, it, when it, it feels like it's just not, it's not worth it anymore. It's just too difficult. It's just, there's too much baggage. There's too much hardship that comes with it. I want to take it easy for a while. I want you to remember the Son of God took on flesh. He voluntarily came to suffer, including suffering on the cross. And while He suffered on the cross, the whole time He believed that God would keep His promises. And indeed, God did. And we know that God kept His promises when we show up on Sunday morning and we look around. You, you, when you look around on Sunday morning, you see the proof. You see the proof in the, in the children that God has graciously given to His Son. We are the ones, by God's grace, that Jesus, because He suffered, to become our brothers and sisters, to, to sanctify us so that He would never be ashamed of us, we are the ones that He meets with to, to build us up. Where, where two or three of us are gathered, He meets with us. He strengthens us. And, and, and He will never be ashamed of us because He Himself has sanctified us with His blood. He has cleaned us up. He did a really good job. And so He has done all of this through His suffering. So it was fitting. It was appropriate. It was, it was beautiful. It was good for the Son to suffer. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for sending Your Son that You could bring many sons and daughters to glory. Now we are going to, because of Christ, we are going to enjoy the, the reward that only He deserves. We're going to enjoy it forever. Because He endured the suffering that He did not deserve. Only we deserved that suffering. He took our suffering in order to give us, in order to give us His reward, in order to share in that with us. We thank you that your Son gladly suffered. We occasionally are ashamed of ourselves. We have sins that we need to repent of, confess, cling to the cross. We thank You that, that if we are in Christ, that He has presented us before You and we look fine. You rejoice over us because the Son has sanctified us we thank You that in some way, when we gather together as people committed to His Word and His Gospel, that the Son strengthens us. The Son delights in what we do. The Son Himself somehow encourages us as we gather together. And we thank You that while Your Son was on the cross, You kept Your 
promise to him. And, and we are proof to keep your promises. Pray that by your grace, our faith in you would be sturdy and we'd be glad to, we'd be glad to come what may, suffer for your sake, for your glory. Help us, God, in Christ's name. Amen.